Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to SEN 1170 Afternoons. Daniel Garb here with you. We're going to go around the globe now to a man who traverses the globe. Uh, That's his job, and he does it in a wonderful way. Rory Smith, football correspondent and global correspondent for the New York Times. He's covered many a football story, and uh, he knows the world game like few others. Rory, thanks for joining me, mate. Great to catch up with you again. It's a pleasure, mate. How are you doing? Going well. Last time I saw you was at the the Women's World Cup here in Australia. We might as well start there. We're going to talk about Andrew Postacoglu in detail, of course. Looking forward to getting your opinion on that the title race, the Aston Villa story and some other things. But I saw you a few months ago at the Women's World Cup here with, you know, as we reflect at this time of the year, on the year in sport, obviously for Australians, that sticks out more than any other. What was your opinion as someone who's covered world football and so many different angles on it? What was your opinion of the Women's World Cup here in Australia and the impact of the Matildas? Well, I think that all major sporting events should be held in Australia. That's my main <laughs> conclusion. But I think it's unacceptable that sporting events are held anywhere other than Australia. And as an Englishman, Dan, and a Yorkshireman, that's very difficult for me to say. No, it, was a, it was a brilliant tournament. I thought the way that the, the country kind of embraced the Matildas in particular, but the tournament in general was really inspiring. It's exactly what a World Cup should be. I thought I thought the I mean I had a mild dose of tilly fever. Um, <laughs> I think I think when a host nation gets through to the latter stages of any tournament, it 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 illuminates the tournament to a large extent. But I think in Australia's case, and particularly maybe in the Matildas case, you know, it, it felt like a real kind of coming of age moment for women's women's football in in Australia, maybe for women's sport as well to an extent. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a brilliant tournament. It was a brilliant experience. I think the global impact of the tournament despite everything that happened afterwards with Louis Rubiales and, and Spain, I think mm-hmm. the fact that you got a, this might get me in trouble, I think the fact the Americans didn't win it was important. Yep. I think it made it feel like Europe, Europe's time is going to come. And then you throw in Colombia, Jamaica, the Aussies. It all felt a bit like that was women's football becoming a slightly more universal thing than just kind of this sport that the Americans are really good at. And everyone else is trying to catch up with. You know, you look now at Western Europe and you say those are the strong leagues. The Aussies will be will be contenders again in 2027. I'm sure Canada will come back. The Swedes always make the semi-finals, no matter how good they are. You know, England obviously making the final. It felt like a it felt like a bit of a watershed. And it was almost a perfect storm in terms of a a narrative and a news story to hook the tournament on. Sam Kerr's injury. I feel as it, as though it helped, you know, it might have hurt the Matildas. It certainly did even though she came back and scored that wonderful goal against England in the semi-final, that it actually enhanced the tournament enormously because, I mean, to ping your calf on the eve of the first game, the biggest 
name in the entire tournament, considering it was on home soil. It, it gave the whole World Cup this incredible storyline to follow all the way through because she is a name that, of course, transcends every single country. Did you feel that as well, that that was a massive boost for the tournament, even though it held the Matildas back? Yeah, I think you, you, you look at tournaments in a slightly strange way as a journalist, maybe, and I'm sure you know there's not many not many Australian fans, not many women's football fans who would have thought that there were any positives at all to Kerr being injured. But I, I think you're right to an extent that it did, it gave it this kind of urgency, this pressure, this great sense of jeopardy. It maybe reminds everybody on some level, this might be a Ponce in New York Times thing to say, but <laughs> it maybe reminds everybody on some level that the tournaments are really, really fragile things. Like it doesn't take much at all to to derail all this thing that you've worked for for years and years and years, as you say, it's, it's pinning a calf at the wrong time. That injury happens a couple of weeks beforehand. It's probably not a massive deal. She maybe misses a couple of group games, on we go. And you, get, you might get to the semis with a fully fit Sam Kerr, which is an entirely different prospect for England. Um, but it did, I wonder if it bonded the, the Matildas to each other to an extent to kind of prove that, that they weren't just Sam Kerr's supporting cast. I think it gave the nation... As, I mean, I don't want to speak on behalf of the Australian nation, but like it, it maybe gave it gave that kind of underdog spirit that Australia, I think, responds quite well to. Um, you'll be a better judge, of, better judge of that than no me. Doubt. And it also it, it kind of made it feel you kind of had this not it's not a redemption arc, but this kind of this sense of like right when Sam Kerr will be back, will it be now? Will it be now? How fit will she be? Will she be able to perform? What can she do? And that that ultimately is quite a compelling story. It might not have any real sporting advantages, but it makes it, it makes it easier to follow, I guess. And I think whether it's men's or women's World Cups or Euros or, you know, Copper America, whatever it might be, you quite often need a little story like that. You know, whether it's, is this Neymar's moment? Can Messi finally win it? All mm, that stuff. Mm. You kind of, we follow, we, we, we understand the world through story. And in the case of this, this winter slash summer, depending on your perspective, it was, it was Sam Kerr's injury and will she make it back in time? And it was, it did. It kind of it, it gave it that little extra free son of energy, I think. It's nice to reflect because it was such a watershed moment in Australian sport. It's just a, a crazy time. And, uh, yeah, this time of the year, that's what we do. So that's the past. Let's look at the now. And if you look at Australian football, it's the Matildas in 2023 and Ange Postacoglu in 2023 as well that have certainly flown the flag more than any other. Ange is going pretty well at Spurs, and we, we are certainly privy to Ange mania over here in Australia, and it feels as if the UK media and football fans over there have become enamoured with him as well. What's the feeling on the ground in regards to Ange and the job he's doing at Tottenham? Well, as you know, we kind of have a funny relationship with Australians. Like we, I think we, we basically quite like you, as a rule, <laughs> until you start winning stuff. Um, and Ange is a, bit of a, is a bit of an exception to that, because... He was look, he was well known from Celtic, you know. Though yeah. we we do look down, the Premier League looks down on everybody, but the Premier League particularly looks down on Scotland. But I think you know the fact that he'd made such a strong impression at Celtic, you know, that he he kind of given all those press conferences where he kind of outlined his philosophies, his his vision of football, even if it meant going toe to toe with Real Madrid. That's the sort of stuff that that every football fan, wherever, wherever you're from, I think admires that 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 courage, that conviction, all that stuff that that Poster Toddler kind of stands for. So he was, he was quite positively received. I mean, there would have been a section of Spurs fans who maybe thought that he wasn't a big enough name, or that, or that Celtic wasn't a big enough kind of previous experience to warrant one of the most sort of appealing jobs in, in English football and world football. But I think generally the response was quite positive to, to Poster Codley. People, 
people responded well to what he'd done at Celtic and, and you know, he, he talks a good game, does Ange ultimately. He says all the things that most fans want to hear. Mm. But I don't think anybody was expecting us to like him so much. <laughs> and some of that is because of because who he is, because of the way he plays, because he's quite funny, because he's, you know, he's, he's, he's a good talker and I think fans respond well to that. Part of it, I think, is because he wasn't really phased by like losing Harry Kane. He kind of just he didn't win. He didn't complain. There was no sort of sense of, you know, like this is this has all been rigged against me. I can't possibly expect to succeed. There was no excuse making, and again, we respond well to that. Mm. But my main thing with with Boston Toddler, I've got to admit, is that he's just normal. Yeah. And there's not a lot of managers who are normal. And he, you know, you look at the way he kind of he answers questions and the way he he, he kind of he'll tell stories, he'll tell jokes. He 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 sees. I'm not quite sure what the swearing policy is on on Australian radio, but like he's he sees straight through the nonsense that yeah. that surrounds football all of the time, and he kind of calls it out, but not in an aggressive, truth talking. You know, I'm I'm the, I'm the only honest man in the room. Way he's just compared to people like Guardiola, who's a brilliant football manager and has you know the finest of his generation, no question. But Guardi- there's a sort of there's a slight mad scientist angle to to Guardiola. <laughs> he's he's not an easy man to love if you're not a Man City fan. Yeah. You know, Jurgen Klopp, I think is a little bit maybe more immediately likable, but at the same time, it's he's he's intense. He's not a great loser. He's he can be very spiky, very barbed. Mm. The same for most of them. You know, the, the, they are incredibly driven, incredibly intense people, and that shines through. And I'm sure Postecoglou is driven and intense, as he wouldn't be Spurs manager if he wasn't. But the fact that he's managed to to remain on some level the sort of person you can imagine having a pint with mm. is really impressive. And it's, it sounds really trite and cliche, but it's really important because, I mean, even in, you know, we've got a general election coming up here next year. And one of the things that pollsters always talk about is pintability, which is a stupid word, but it, it kind of captures that essence of, can you imagine sitting down and having just like a normal chat yeah. with this person? And I think Postacoglu's pintability is, is through the roof. And there is, look, there is a bit of a backlash now people have started to take the mickey out of the mate thing a little yeah, bit. Yeah. I personally think there's like three or four different mates that <laughs> there is a, there's a friendly mate. There's quite an aggressive mate. There's a mate. I think you're an idiot. Um, but <laughs> that's to be expected. Just football is, is so tribal and it's so cynical. Ultimately, you know, we're not conditioned to like any, anybody in this sport that we all love, which is a really weird vibe. But post- the fact that it's taken four or five months, is probably as as well as anyone could do before there's even any sort of backlash. And and in Poster Toddler's case, it's still quite small, to be honest. He is generally and genuinely popular. Yeah. Um, As somebody who's interviewed him a lot, I've been on the receiving end of every single kind of those mates, to be honest, um, from Ange. (laughs) My my theory on him is that he's why he's so likable there is he's not, to borrow a term from the Shawshank Redemption, he's not institutionalised. So a lot of the managers have been Mm. in that European system for so long that they think you have to play games with the media. You have to be political with your owners. And Ange, because he's waited so long for this chance to get a crack at it in Europe and he's 57 and he's come from the outside, managed in Australia, managed in Japan, he's not interested in that nonsense. He's not going to waste his time now that he's got that crack at the Premier League worrying about all the other games that managers feel as if they have to play a Mourinho and a Conte to use the previous examples at Spurs. And I think Tottenham fans have loved that. And now he's been linked to the Man City job. So Gary Neville's come out and said, yep, he's the perfect replacement. You'd think as it stands, all things being equal, a lot of water to go under the bridge, to use another cliche, and before Pep leaves and to see what Ange does at Tottenham. But the link there makes a lot of sense considering his relationship with the City Football Group in Japan and at Celtic, for that matter, previously. 
Yeah, do you know what I said? This is going to sound like me, me being a real smartass, so I apologise. But I, I remember saying that someone at City told me while he was still at Celtic that the, the people in, within CFG really like Ange Postecoglou. Mm. They think he's a, they thought he's a great manager. They think he did brilliantly at Yokohama. Plays the right sort of football. He got the right values. I think, to be honest, given what City what, what City Football Group is, I think the fact that he's a nice bloke probably helps a lot because there's, you know there is a PR element to that whole exercise. Um, and I and I said I went on on the BBC and just in passing sort of said it. Not me, not me. I wasn't linking into the city. No, I wasn't saying. Wasn't I? Wasn't sacking Guardiola there and then. This was a couple of years ago, and and obviously as happens whenever you say anything to anyone at any point, I got a load of abuse on Twitter for it. <laughs> but it, it makes perfect sense because they know they know him. There, there are there are links obviously within the group. They they all talk to each other. It's still a rel- it's a big operation, globe spine operation, but it's a relatively small place. Like you go to any of the city clubs and you'll find people who you've sort of seen in Manchester. Um, and I think that they, they had clearly spotted very early on, this guy is good at coaching footballers. He's he's probably not a kind of era-defining coach like Pep Guardiola in a in kind of he's not gonna invent a ta- he's not gonna invent a tactic that everyone immediately copies. He might do, I don't know, but I think you know, Guardiola's kind of a one off. Mm. But if you are planning for the post Guardiola era, you you look around at potential candidates, you, you maybe think maybe Arteta. But then it's difficult to get him out of Arsenal. Mm. Deserby at Brighton, but he he's got a relatively poor disciplinary record, and I think that's the sort of thing that the clubs will look at. Brighton have gone off the boil a little bit in the last few weeks, and so up and down maybe results with Deserby. Poster Codley is as compelling a candidate as there is in England, I think. Well, um, there'll be there'll be others, you know, someone like Francesca Farioli at Nice or whatever, someone who's the next big thing coming out of Europe. That's perfectly possible. But if you look, to be honest, if you look across. Across the Premier League, and Man United are actually the best example of this, you can take a manager from Europe who is without question a top-class coach, who has got all the stuff that you need or that you'd be looking for, and sometimes it doesn't translate. So I do think with managers, if you look at someone like Postecoglou who is doing really well at Spurs, this season might end with a trophy, it might end with Champions League football, it, it might end in you know, one of those kind of relative forms of success that most teams have to have. Mm. I think you look at Postecoglou and think, you know what, he knows he knows the lead, he, he can perform in this lead. If you give him a better quality of player than he's got at Spurs, maybe he'd be able to continue Guardiola's work at maybe not quite the same level because Guardiola's Guardiola, but maybe he's better than anybody else. I think I think that, that seemed ridiculous when I said it two years ago. I think now it looks like it might be one of those very rare things, Dan, where I can look back on something I've said previously and gone, that was right. It doesn't happen very often, but it's nice when it does. <laughs> Selling yourself short, but wonderful to get your insights on that. And yeah, it does all add up. Uh, maybe Unai Emery is another one in the mix for the Man City job in time. Maybe he gets a crack at, at a really big club. The work he's doing at Aston Villa is incredible. So my final question, Villa, how far can they go? What's the secret ingredients as well that has led to this remarkable first third of the season and a bit for them and then the title race on the whole and do you see it being Liverpool Arsenal Man City right until the very end who are you leading towards uh, so that's three so hang on the middle one first so I, I think the secret with Villa is that they've got they've got a really good squad that yeah. they, they they are like all Premier League teams they're, they're really really rich in a global sense they've got a load of money they've spent it really well I think they actually had quite a good squad under Gerrard to be honest and, and Gerrard wasn't getting the most out of it um, Emery's added two or three players quite judiciously. Pau Torres has made a difference. Diego Carlos, the Brazilian centre-back, who's come back from injury, looks looks outstanding. Um, he's getting the best out of Jacob Murphy, who's really talented. Leon Bailey, he's he's got some consistency into. 
it's just it's that simple stuff. It's a manager who doesn't have an overriding philosophy, who doesn't demand that he he plays a certain way, even if it doesn't suit his players. It's a good squad, a good squad, a deep squad, um, and a club that kind of fits the manager. I think Emery's is exactly the right level for Emery. Maybe at Arsenal, he was a little bit overwhelmed by this, like the, the demands that the fans have that they play a certain way or that things look a certain way. At Villa, he's able, he's been able to go in and say, right, this is what we're going to do. And the club has fallen into line behind him, and, and that's kind of what you need. How far they can go, I, it's funny. You, you, there's part of your brain that thinks you can't, po- you can't possibly sit here and say, do you know what, Villa could win the title? Because we're so conditioned to thinking that that sort of stuff doesn't happen. But, you know, do you know what, if they, if they avoid injuries, if they get knocked out of the conference lead relatively quickly, you know, maybe make the last 16 and then, and then, you know, get beaten by Ludogorets, Rasgrad or someone, you know, it might, it might take an embarrassment to get them out. Um, Mm. Then I think it's possible. If you look at Leicester, who were a much smaller club and had a much smaller squad, what, what basically accounted, the two things that worked in Leicester's favor were one, they didn't get any injuries at all, major injuries through the season. And two, all of the big six teams were in some sort of transitional year. And it does look a little bit similar. City are still City. I still, I still expect them to win the lead. I think they are the only team capable of winning 12 games in a row. Um, but then there's no question they don't look as imperious as they were last season. They, they've always had hiccups. Every year under Guardiola, there's been a period where you think, mm, maybe they're not that great. And they tend to come out of it. I think this season, there's lots and lots of different little things that add up them just not being quite as good as they were. So they might still be able to get 90 points, but as it stands, they're not on track to do that. It looks like it might be like an 85-point season, in which case if Villa can stay injury-free, get rid of the conference lead at some point, it is possible they can stay within the whole distance. I think more likely is that Arsenal are the, are the team that can, can stay with City for as long as possible. Mm. They're, they're not getting a huge amount of credit here because they're not playing particularly spectacularly. But then, I, I, again, to, to use a relatively recent like, parallel from history, if you look at the Liverpool team that won it in 2020, they didn't play well at all for the first five months of the season. You know, they were winning games by a single goal. They were, they, people were saying, oh, I'm not sure if they've got, they've got it in them to, to kind of stay with it. And then by the time you looked at the table, they'd won 26 out of 27 games, drawn the other one, and they're about 15 points clear. So I think Arsenal maybe have that air of just chugging through the games Liverpool, I think, are a little bit further behind. If you, if you look at the kind of rhythm of their season, mm. you've had a period where the midfield looked dodgy, then there was a period where the defence looked dodgy, now the strikers can't score any goals. It's possible that at some point in the next couple of months, the whole team clicked at the same time and, and they don't want to tear. I think more likely is that this is a, a year too early for Liverpool. They'll be fine for the Champions League, but I don't think they'll, they'll, they'll be able to stay with City and Arsenal long term. I think it'll be relatively close. I don't think there'll be massive gaps at any point. I don't think City will win it by, by 10 or 12 points. I'd expect them to do it. I think Arsenal were probably the likeliest challengers, but I'd, it would be amazing if Villa did it. That would be a really great way to end the season with, with Aston Villa as champions. And, you know, it happens just every so often. Yep. Something unusual, the, the unexpected can occur. So maybe it's this year. Lovely stuff, mate. Really enjoyed your insights. Rory Smith, global sports correspondent, football writer for the New York Times speaking to us from his home in Yorkshire in the UK. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, mate. Have a great Christmas and New Year, and uh, let's keep in touch. Always a pleasure, mate. And, yeah, enjoy your sunny Christmas. <laughs> it's not sunny at the moment, but we will.